Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 14th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight, we take you to Hollywood for the Gallica Awards toast. And if you're wondering what the Gallica Awards are, that's... Oh, we are. That's for the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics. Steve's visit with a very funny Ryan O'Donnell to talk about his memoir, I'm Special, and other lies we tell ourselves. And Bosch Bodhi takes us to an LGBT retreat in Northern California. But first, let's spill some tea. Be honest, tea. Oh, is there any sunny, bright tea okay, this week? There is, <laughs> but I had to not push for it. Well, and it's raining here. It's raining here, and there's some really bad stuff that we do need to talk about. And there is sunny, bright stuff. I'm just letting people know, but we're not talking okay, about it yeah, tonight. Not today. And I'm really sorry about that. I know. Next week. Um, because important bad things happening. <laughs> Some of it looks like familiar bad things happening. Yes. Um, So we have talked quite a bit in the past about reports out of Chechnya of persecution, the systemized persecution against LGBTQ people there. Chechnya, of course, is a Russian federation. In the South. Or the Russian Republic. Yeah. Largely Muslim, I believe. Yes, it is. And uh, we always think, well, it can't get worse than this. Well. And it is. So <laughs> since late December, I mean, not very long, Mm-mm. there have been a, a flurry of reports um, about an increase in the pros- persecution of LGBTQ people and people who are suspected of being LGBTQ. At least 40 arrests have happened. There's an official word that there have been two deaths, but individuals who are pretty credible witnesses say it's more like 10 to 20 people have been killed. We're talking right. in a month. Well, and, and the thing about it is, too, there's... There's very few people actually there on the ground. These are people who are hearing from Chechnya. Yeah. They're out of the country. So it's all very, I don't want to say dicey, but it's so hard to, to pin anything down. Because they can't, so, yeah, they have yeah. to be completely sabrosa about everything yeah. they do. So there is an organization called the Russian LGBT Network that is actually helping people. It's been mm-hmm. helping people for 18 months um, or two they years. They come up every time we tell the story. Yep. <laughs> who are tracking this, who yeah. are actually getting people out of the country. They've so far, in, since 2017, gotten about 150 people out of Chechnya and the northern Caucasus this region, and even um, 130 people out of Russia. But so they're a pretty reliable source. They're talking to people on the ground, right. but it all is happening kind of, a, you know, with an anonymous sheen to it. But basically, the security forces in uh, Chechnya have been torturing people, holding them in a purpose, you know, purpose constructed building just for the purpose of torturing people. Which is not quite as bad as being an immigrant child in America. No, it is worse no, than that. No, it's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty bad. It's like we, we don't really have a huge finger to point in this. No, we don't. We're yeah. losing a lot of the moral high ground mm. if we ever had any. I, um, not in my lifetime. But there's been a call from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe for Russia to investigate this wave of torture and killings. Um, and surprise, surprise, Russia hasn't done very much. I was going to say, I don't have high hopes for that. No. And yet, as far away as it is and as hopeless as it thing as we feel, it's like, what can I do? I did run across a link uh, yeah. in one of the articles to rainbowrailroad.com. So go take a look at that and check it out. They've got all of their bona fides on the website because, oh, of course, I did not do the research. But no. I'm sure, that, I'm sure they're legitimate. But go check them out, rainbowrailroad.com. And if you want to read up on this, um, one of the more interesting ones, it's inside Russia, is called Meduza, M-E-D-U-Z-A dot... I O dot slash E N. Hmm. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Try yeah. that again. M E D U Z A dot I O slash E N. So I guess I O is Russia and E N. You can do, also do a Google search for Chechnya and Medusa yeah. with a Z. Yeah. Um, and I actually got an uh, email address if people know somebody. I mean, because we have listeners all over the world. Um, Kavkaz at lgbtnet.org. That's K A V K A Z at lgbtnet.org for more information or actually assistance. Um, but, but yeah, we're going to be following this in the coming months. So going from oppression in one freezing part of the world to oppression in another part of the world that's also cold, we have uh, the homeless in Anchorage, Alaska. Yes. And uh, the... Now, let's get this right. The Alliance Defending Freedom. Okay, let's go back. Not the first time we've talked about them. No, either. no, no. But let's let's backtrack a little bit. There uh, is a non-discrimination uh, ordinance. Clause. Ordinance, thank you. And it was actually on the ballot to uh, be voted down. And that 
did not pass. Well, so there is a non-discrimination law in Anchorage, Alaska. Yes, yes. But the Alliance Defending Freedom is using that my religious freedom excuse to say uh, we can close shelters in midwinter in Alaska, mind you, to transgendered persons because, and let me see if I can find that quote, um, because a lot of the residents are uh, there because of domestic violence and they would rather, quote, sleep in the woods end quote, than share space with a transgendered woman, which seems, this is coming from a lawyer for yes. the, the Alliance, Alliance Defending, Defending Freedom. Freedom. And that seems like a really broad statement, not made on the basis of, of any, any fact, facts. experience. And of course, they're using the religious exemption argument, well, yes, which yes, yes. totally shows that that is a complete, yeah. you know, artifice statement. And um, David Dinelli, who's the deputy legal director for the Southern Poverty Law Center, love them, said, of course, as we know, there is no evidence that trans people are more of a threat to anyone than anyone else. And this, I thought, was the most salient point. In fact, we know transgender people are among the most, if not the most, likely to be targeted for abuse, sexual abuse, and physical abuse. So to me, if you are really concerned about this, maybe the approach might be education. I know, because what kind of a monster would turn any living creature out in Alaska in January? I looked it up. It's going to be 18 degrees tonight in Anchorage. Oh, that sounds balmy. There you go. Relative to what it is so in my imagination. you were saying, Wenzel, when we were talking about this, that this seemed a little bit like the people that did the um, objection to the lynching bill right. that includes, yes, the bill that says right, right, right. no lynching. I mean, I mean, the fact that it took us until last December for this country to have a law that makes lynching people which is just mob rule murder, um, a, a federal crime. Who knew? Um, and then the evangelicals came out and said, oh. We really don't like LGBT because, you know. Yeah, we don't want to include them. Camel nose in the tent. You yeah, don't know what could happen so. after that. And then very quickly, um, so we talked, I think, a couple of years ago about uh, Ed Buck, who right. is a WeHo resident, uh, a big booster for the Democratic Party and donor. And... Um, Unfortunately, uh, a, another man has been found dead in his home, and... He has a way of dead black men showing up in his home. So, yes, and this is looking very dicey. Um, the man in question is a man named Timothy Dean. He was a fashion consultant, the founder of the National Gay Basketball Association, who even competed in the gay games. The cause of death has not been released. And we actually don't know a lot. And apparently a friend. They've known each other for years. Yeah. This wasn't a stranger. It wasn't like the, the previous one, which was a much younger man... Right. Who was perhaps made the acquaintance of that evening. And yes, so we're referring to yeah. Jamel Moore, who um, was found dead of a drug overdose in Ed Buck's house in 2017. The sheriff's department said it was an accidental overdose. There's been a lot of pressure, especially from Jamel Moore's mother mm -hmm. and other protesters to really look at this again. There is a suggestion. There's a reputation. I do, do not know this firsthand that Ed Buck um, does have a reputation of bringing young black men to his house and for various purposes. And there is a sense that he might be getting away with murder. That is just what the protesters have been speaking about. But we are going to follow up on this one. Are you too. implying that white men with money get away with things that I other people wouldn't don't? dare say that. But another interesting thing that, about this is that um, there's also pressure mounting on Democratic candidates who mm -hmm. receive money from him for their campaigns right. and uh, to return that money. So, so far, California Representative Ted Lieu said he'd right. donate more than eight $18,000 in campaign contributions he received from Mr. Right. Buck to LGBTQ and African-American civil rights organizations. So definitely a lot more information needs to um, come to light, but it looks like they are going to be revisiting uh, what happened with Jamal Moore right. in 2017 as well as they look into this. So yet another upsetting story we'll probably be talking about again later. Yeah. Saturday and I, Steve Pride and I, attended the 10th Annual Dorian Awards given by Gallica, the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment critics, so let's give that a listen. On Saturday, Gallica, the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics honored its picks for the year's finest in film and television, from mainstream to LGBTQ-focused, via its 10th Annual Dorian Awards. This event was at the Paley Restaurant in Hollywood's historic Columbia Square building, once home to CBS Radio and later CBS Television, where I Love Lucy filmed its pilot and pre-famed James Dean worked as an usher. Hi, I'm John Griffiths with Gallica, the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics. 
And you are the founder. I am the founder and uh, former president and executive director. I'm a star. Why did you do this? Why? It was just a crazy notion. Coming up with Gallica, the Society of LGBTQ Entertainment Critics, I thought that it would be nice to have a bunch of fun LGBTQs who love TV and movies get together and, and name their favorite TV shows and movies. And why not? That sends a big message to the world if they're entertainment critics with a little bit of uh, gravitas and can form a, an alliance together. Maybe they could put on an award show that would mean something and show the world that LGBTQs have, uh, remind them actually, that uh, LGBTQs have a really strong history of cherishing and championing not just uh, gay stuff that you see on TV and movies, but also campy movies and, and melodramas and unique, weird, out there movies that, you know, we help put stuff on the radar to the mainstream. And then that power of influence and word of mouth really does help Hollywood quite a bit. So I thought, you know, we should honor that and uh, harness that. And we have, and it's now 10 years later. And look at us, we're having a big fancy award show. Hi, I'm Diane Anderson-Menchel, and I'm the board president of Gallica. This is our crowning achievement every year, putting on the Dorian Awards, and so I think I'm excited to see these amazing winners get acknowledgement and know that they're, they're, you know, some of these people are getting awards from other organizations, and some of them aren't because we're special and we have very special interests and stuff. And so I'm interested in these people knowing how much support and validation they're getting from LGBTQ journalists and critics. And what about the growth of the last 10 years? This is an amazingly grown event. It has, it has, and uh, what's interesting is for our next year, in 2020, we're really looking at this event even growing, perhaps doubling in size. So we've got some big plans going into the next year. We're in a growth period for sure. And even if you weren't the president, you're still kind of the queen of entertainment critics because of your background. Tell me about where you come from. Oh gosh, well thank you for saying that. I'm actually the editorial director of three different magazines right now. The Advocate, which is the oldest LGBTQ magazine in the country. We're celebrating our 52nd anniversary. Also the editorial director of Chill, which is for young men of color and plus, which is for people living with HIV. Before that, I spent a decade as the editor-in-chief of Curve, the world's largest lesbian magazine. And before that, Alice and Girlfriends and Honor Backs magazines. And I worked for a lot of entertainment mainstream. I've written for or appeared in mainstream entertainment outlets and places like the New York Times and stuff. Hello, I'm Frank DeCaro, and I am the Toastmaster of the 10th Annual Dorian Awards, given by the Gay and Lesbian Entertainment Critics Association. So what do you know about gays, lesbians, and entertainment? I've been around gays all my life. I'm not one myself. No, I'm a big queer. And uh, no, I love this, and, and I love that we're having such a diverse year of presentations on, on screen. We've had lesbian queens and drag queens and the band queen. We have everything. I, I've really, it's been a good year, I have to say. Hi, I'm Lucy DeVito. And you're here to accept the award for uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? How did you become involved with that? Well, you know, I think I auditioned for a part and just got a little cameo and now here I am. Yeah. I had to rewatch it. It's like, oh, that was the girl. Yeah. But you've been in so many other movies I loved. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, glad you like my work. We are an LGBTQ um, critics association. We're nationwide, actually international now, with England and Australia. Why is this, this community important to honor the work being done? I think it's really important to honor all different kinds of people who are contributing to the arts and telling those specific stories and being inclusive and just reveling in the joy of uh, being a human. Oh, wow. Okay. I love the subtlety of William, forgive me. Yeah. I didn't realize Ms. Melissa McCarthy's character oh, was yeah. lesbian until the movie's almost over. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I think yeah. it is subtle. I think that um, nothing about it is like too overt and very natural, and the characters unravel before you, which I think is like surprising and beautiful. Hello, my name is Deborah Davis, and I'm one of the script writers on The Favorite. One of the favorites of mine, at least. How did you become involved with the project? I was the one who found the story, and I researched it, and I put together the first draft of the script, and I then found a producer, Cece Dempsey, and we were in development, and then Element Pictures came on board, and finally, Yorgos came on board in 2010, and from there on, we 
felt very safe because his vision came to bear on the project. When you first read about these ladies and you decided to write about it, did you have any idea that it would take the world by storm? They certainly took the world by storm at the time. And that was what was so interesting about it. So when I found the story, it was a little snippet in a local paper that said, well, everyone knew that the Duchess of Marlborough was having an affair with Queen Anne. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't know about that. And I don't know about Queen Anne. But when you start reading the primary sources, the letters, the diaries, ballads that were written, newspaper cuttings, correspondence between third parties quite separate from the main characters. It was a huge, huge story at the time and incredibly dramatic. So in a way, now that it's come through with Yorgos's vision stamped on it, I'm not surprised that it's having the same impact. What about getting this honor from the gay and lesbian entertainment journalists today? Fantastic honor for me to be recognized by Gallica and both Tony and I, Tony McNamara, my co-writer, are very excited about this. I want you to just think of me as a bald Fiji girl, is really what uh, I want you to know. If you need water, I will be happy to get it for you. So um, anyway, I promise you that today's reception and toast will be at least less awkward than the opening monologue of the Golden Globe Awards. That is the good news. The bad news is that Sandra Oh has written my jokes. No, it's true. It's true, but it's okay because Valentina is here for punch up, so it's good. <laughs> Did you see last night? <laughs> Not good. Anyway, so I'm honored to be in the room with so many of my fellow LGBTQ critics. As a group, we run the gamut from the merely bitchy to the truly evil. <laughs> I'm proud to be one of you. When you put us in a room, it is a lot like Lindsey Graham Knight and Hamburger Mary's, is really what it feels like. <laughs> Anyway, it's the 10th anniversary of the Dorian Awards. And yes, isn't that great? Congratulations, yay. And traditionally, the 10th anniversary is celebrated with tin. So on the way out the door, you will be handed a can of soup, which as you know on a freelancer's salary is lunch for a week. So hooray for that. So don't snip at it, and it'll be fine. When I was a kid, if, if someone had told me when I was being bullied on the playground back in New Jersey that it gets better, and, and that someday, and by gets better, I mean that I would be sent screeners to every movie. <laughs> For a complete list of winners, check in at Galica, G-A-L-E-C-A dot com. For IRU reporting from the 10th Annual Dorian Awards in Hollywood, this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. And if I can share a little bit of gossip, Marissa Jarrett Winoker, who was the lead in uh, Hairspray on Broadway, was supposed to show up and present, but did not. Ooh, do we know why? No, we do not know why. We we're, just... we're just going generally tisk tisk, but mm, I hope okay. it was nothing serious because then I'd feel really bad. Okay, yeah, okay. but so we don't know that, so you can still no. feel bitchy. Thank All right. you. And I, we should disclose that Steve is on the Gallica board, but he did not lie. Fun was had by all. And speaking of fun, Ryan O'Connell is a writer and professional feeler of emotions living in Los Angeles. He has written for Thought Catalog, Vice, The New York Times, Medium, and other publications, as well as for Will and Grace. Steve Pride talks with him about his book, I'm Special and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves. <laughs> This is Steve Pride, bringing you Pride Out Loud tonight with... My name is Ryan O'Connell. I'm a writer, and I'm the author of I'm Special and Otherwise We Tell Ourselves. So are you special? You tell me! It's radio, so I want to do the visual. You sure. are handicapped. Yeah, I have cerebral palsy. And what is that? The actual dictionary term is just trauma that can happen during the birth, and then that will manifest as muscular incoordination or speech disturbances. My case is much more on the mild scale. It can go from mild to wild. So I don't think cerebral palsy really looks the same on everyone. I think you can dress it up. You can dress it down. It runs the gamut. When all this stuff happens is when you're growing, your muscles are growing, and blah, 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 and then you plateau. But the doctors have told me that even though we're not going to die, 
earlier than everyone else. Apparently, our muscles in our bodies are aged 10 years ahead. So, like, I'm 30 years old, but I apparently have the body of a 41-year-old. But I don't believe that. You just have to take care of yourself. Having cerebral palsy, I think the onus is really on me to make sure that I'm healthy and functional because I feel like I would, would pay for it in larger ways than an able-bodied person would. I had a stroke about 11 years ago, and mm. I lost the use of my left hand, mm. and I'm um, weak on that side. And the physical challenges, there are a lot of them. They, even it's just tying my shoes, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. But um, I get really upset when someone says, oh, you're so brave. Yeah, when I you're know. you're out of bed, what? It's condescending. It's like, what choice do I have? That's a, definitely a, an annoying thing to say, but I think that people just don't know how to interact with people who have disabilities because I think there's just a complete lack of dialogue around it. So it comes off as condescension. They're like well-meaning, but it's almost like not their fault because we've been so marginalized and kind of fallen through the cracks that just no one knows what to do with us. I think your book is unintentionally inspiring. Oh, wow. Um, Well, tell me about your childhood. I grew up in Ventura, which is an hour north of here. I always say it's like Laguna Beach with like a pinch of meth. It was weird. My life was kind of a swirl of being at school, just having friends, and then going to physical therapy all the time. Because when you're younger, cerebral palsy has much more of a starring role in your life because people don't really know how things are going to work out for you. Like, everything is very TBD. So you have to be really involved with therapy. And I had surgeries a lot when I was younger. There was a major duality going on between my life at school and then my life after school. And I deeply resented CP and like how it made me different than everyone else and having to have all these surgeries. And I spent two weeks in a full body cast up to here, which was so weird. And I had an Achilles tendon lengthening surgery and I was had to be in a wheelchair for like four months and all that stuff. But everyone was super chill. My parents didn't have money, but I was on financial aid. So I went to a private school and I had really small classes, which were like 14 kids. And we were all a family because there were so few of us. So that really, really brought a lot of acceptance into my life. It's so funny because I actually never encountered any kind of bullying, which is crazy because I'm gay and disabled. Literally, there's a a bullseye there should be um, on me. But my parents were very, very aware of keeping me a little bit sheltered from that. And it was so amazing because I hated myself so much just by virtue of being gay and disabled that I can't imagine having like outside people hate me too. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the biggest bully in my life was myself. I can't imagine having to deal with like an actual bully. I can't. That was really helpful for me in a lot of ways. When did you come out? 17. How? I met a boy that I really liked and I kind of just knew that in order to be with him, I had to come out. So I came out to everyone in two weeks. I had like a coming out tour. I like told everyone I knew. I had a coming out party too at my house. I like did a big gay reveal and I filmed like a video and all that stuff and had like gift bags for everybody. No one cared about me being gay. I grew up in a very accepting environment, but you just are taught to feel shame because of society and all that stuff. My relationship with my disability was much harder than being gay. Being gay initially felt like a troll because I felt like being gay and disabled, there was no chance of me ever finding someone. But beyond that, though, like once I got over it, being gay was sort of a non-issue for me. In the book, you talk about kind of being closeted about your disability, working remotely and stuff like that. Yeah. What happened was, is I didn't really mention CP growing up at all. No one talked about it. They kind of just knew that it was a no-go zone. When I was 20, I got hit by a car and I developed compartment syndrome in my left arm which is when the oxygen supply gets cut off to the muscles. So actually my left hand is only like 50% functional. So that was really hard and very devastating to have that loss. But then I went to New York six months after I got hit by a car to go to school. And everyone there assumed that my limp and everything was from my accident. And in my mind, I felt like being an accident victim was like much more relatable because anyone can get hit by a car. Whereas to me, cerebral palsy felt very foreign and not relatable at all. I felt like there was a stigma attached to it. Whereas getting hit by a car, there's no stigma. It's like, oh my God, bummer. Jesus, that's so unfair. So I just rewrote my identity and I kind of threw cerebral palsy into the garbage. And I just lived life as an accident victim for many years. But that obviously posed problems. Like, the first three years, I was, like, living, laughing, and, like, loving. But when you're not being honest about who you are, there's going to be problems. And I always say it's hard to run from who you are, especially if you have a limp. So eventually, I kind of had to face the disabled music. You've brought the funny to cerebral palsy now. Cerebral palsy. Yeah. I try. <laughs> well, that's the only way to do it. I mean, that's my law lens. I look through a law lens. You just sort of have to. Otherwise, it gets too bleak lively. It's, like, the way to cope. 
And also it's a way to normalize things. Because if you get people laughing about an uncomfortable subject, it makes people feel at ease with it. And that's sort of what I want to do. I just want people to feel comfortable about it. And I want them to feel like it's not this kind of scary thing to talk about, you know? Did you find it's not them but you? Yeah, half-half, actually. I think that I made it in my mind to be this monster that it wasn't. Most people don't care. They really don't. But, again, it's a lack of education. It's ignorance. Disabled people are an interesting marginalized group because you can't hate us. Like, it's illegal. Like, no one's going to, like, yell out of a car, yell like, gimp. It's just not allowed. So we're just ignored. (laughs) We're not even, like, interesting enough to troll. (laughs) You know what I mean? And that's its own kind of exquisite kind of pain, you know, to feel invisible. I feel like being disabled is being highlighted, but then also being discarded. You're so visible and people see you and you see them seeing you. And then you also see them erase you, like, in real time. And that's hard. But again, it's just because disabled people don't have a voice. They just don't. So it's sort of like you can't completely blame them for not knowing. And now it's up to the culture and for people with disabilities to talk about this stuff openly. And hopefully that will lead to a better education. Well, your CP is mild, you said. so. Very mild, yeah. One of the things I share with Jerry is that when we go into a bar during the day, mm-hmm. walking from the door. Oh, they the think you're drunk. Tender, yeah, it's like, can't I get that. sir. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. In, in college, there was a lot of bouncers being like, "Hey, is your friend okay? Is your friend okay?" He seems to be like, and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I, I get that a lot." And it's always at the moment where you think you're hiding it so well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I have a very pronounced limp. I mean, I will never be able to pass as able body. There's just no way. It's weird. Like, it's so odd to me. Like, I just wrapped work on Will and Grace, and I worked on um, the Universal lot. And I would walk from, I take Ubers because, like, I can't drive. And I would take an Uber from the from the gate to our offices, which was, like, a 15-minute walk. And every day I would have, without fail, people in their little carts offering me rides, asking me if I was okay. I've had people ask me if I need to go to the hospital. And it's so funny because I'm, like, in pretty good shape. Like, I work out five days a week. Like, I'm very strong. And I feel like when I walk, I mean, I, I don't have any perception of it because I can't see myself. But it's, like... Does it look like I'm wincing in pain? Like, I'm just confused. I actually, like, don't understand. I'm like, ow, ow. Like, am I just screaming? I don't understand. People just look at me, like, so concerned. And I'm just like, it's so bizarre to me because I'm just like, I'm fine. But I guess I look like I'm really not fine. This is Steve Pride bringing you Pride Out Loud. This was part one of a two-part conversation with TV writer Ryan O'Connell about his book, I'm Special and other lies we tell ourselves. And how much do I love the whole idea of the coming out tour? Let's go. I know. (laughs) It's It's a little little overdue, but let's go. I know. Yeah, I don't don't know that many people in that many faraway places, but... No, we can just go places together, Wenzel, and we can just congratulate each other and support each other as we come out to each other in another town. And give each other an award. Oh, yeah. Because that's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, no, that absolutely. That'll be the best. And luckily, there's more of this to come. It will be the conclusion of Steve's chat with writer Ryan O'Donnell. And Vosh Bodhi takes us to Groundswell, an LGBTQ retreat where I'm sure lots of people are naked. Oh, I hope so. Maybe not, in Northern California. So stick around. We'll be right back. Jasper John's American Flags, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Augusta, Georgia in 1930, Jasper Johns was drawing by age three and never stopped. Periods of study in South Carolina and New York were followed by a stint in the military, ending in 1953. Johns soon settled in New York City and formed a romantic relationship with painter Robert Rauschenberg. Johns was strongly influenced by the gay couple choreographer Merce Cunningham and composer John Cage. Working together, they explored the contemporary art scene. Johns created the first of his many flag paintings in 1955, a dried wax, oil, and collage on fabric mounted on plywood that came to him as a dream. Years later, Johns' piece, Three Flags, was displayed as a symbol of patriotism at a New York museum after the attack on the World Trade Center. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Richmond City Councilman Charles Samuels. Hello, I'm Pandora Box, and you are listening to I Am RU Radio Magazine. Who 
are those kazoo players, Wenzel? <laughs> They're kind of brilliant, whoever mm. they are. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And we return to Steve Pride's conversation with Ryan O'Connell. This is Steve Pride bringing you Pride Out Loud with the conclusion of a two-part conversation with TV writer Ryan O'Connell about his book, I'm Special, and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves. Yeah, it was really crazy. I mean, the book itself was a non-success, which was kind of funny. I mean, it sold like nothing. But before it came out, the manuscript had gotten into Jim Parsons' hands, and he was just starting up a production company called That's Wonderful, and he really responded to it. And so I met with him, and he was amazing, so nice. And I've dealt with a lot of actors before, and usually they're some level of crazy. And he was actually, like, eerily normal and sweet. It was almost like, wait, like what? what's going on? So we really connected. And then, because Hollywood is such a weird town, Jim being interested in it created this buzz. And so we ended up having four studios bid on it. But I went with Jim because... I just trusted him, and because we got along, and he was like a human being, like I felt like everyone else I talked to, like they were all nice and stuff, but there's a certain kind of fakeness I didn't like. Also, I was really clear about not going to network television. I did not want to do like Fresh Off the Boat or Blackish for disabled people because I wanted to, I well, no, and that's no shade to those shows, but I wanted to talk about gay stuff a lot, and I wanted to talk about sex, and that was really important for me, and that was a non-negotiable. So we went to cable places and we pitched it. Everyone loved it and everyone wanted to buy it, but then they all got cold feet and they didn't buy it. So that was hard. And then we eventually sold it to a digital platform as part of Warner Brothers. And I can't like talk about things officially yet, but it's looking pretty good for we're going to shoot it. Who do you see playing you? I'm starring in it. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm in acting classes right now. That's a real challenge for me. Acting is completely new to me. I don't know what I'm doing. I've literally had one class, and it's humbling. What are the challenges of playing you? It's kind of confusing because you're not playing yourself. You're playing a younger version of yourself. You're playing a more exaggerated version of yourself. So it's being able to tap into those nuances and differences and figure out that character and what makes him funny. And so that's interesting. That's the hard part because you really aren't playing yourself. You're playing a character who is you but not really you. It gets kind of confusing. You have to like lay down at a certain point. You get dizzy. You are undoubtedly successful in a field that um, few people are. A lot of people come here with their spec scripts and everything and say, I want to be on a TV show or work on a TV show. Mm -hmm. You made that happen. I know I'm perceived as successful, but... I've also faced so much rejection that it's kind of crazy. I feel like because people don't talk about the rejections that they face, like they don't post it on Instagram, they only post like the deadline article when they got something greenlit. I feel like it's created this like skewed perception of what it means to be successful. And like, I think there's this sort of idea that things come easier for some people or whatever. But in my experience, it's always ebbs and flows. So I wanted to write for television for a really long time. But I kind of knew that I couldn't be a writer's assistant or do any of those traditional pathways because of my disability. So... I didn't really set out to do this in a methodical way, but I think it was always in the back of my mind that I would create kind of a platform for myself and become known in that way, like with writing. And then I would parlay that into a book deal and then get an agent for TV. And that's sort of what happened. So when I was in New York, I was really overwriting for the internet because A, you make no money, and B, my whole existence was kind of thinking about what insanely personal aspect of my life had the potential to go viral, which is no way to live. So I was like, okay, I have to write myself out of this corner that I've gotten myself into. And I wrote a spec script about being disabled. It was called GIMP, and I kind of knew that no one was writing that pilot that year. It was also a good way to kind of talk about my disability and all that stuff. Anyway, through that, I got an agent at UTA, I moved to L.A. two months afterward, not knowing how anything worked. I didn't know when staffing season was. I moved in July. I was like, okay, I'm going to get staffed. And my agent was like, well, network staffing literally just ended. You've come at, like, a really weird time. Um, but luckily, he was like, well, what shows are you watching? And I watched that show Awkward on MTV. And he was like, oh, that's staffing right now. And um, I got a meeting with the showrunners, and I got the job. So it actually, I only was here four weeks, and then I got a job, which I know is insane, and never happens. I feel like I need to go in the witness protection program when I share this story because it's really not how things are done. But yeah, so I wrote on that for two seasons. My book came out. And then that year, I didn't work at all. I didn't work for a year because the show didn't sell. I couldn't get staffed. And it was a real, real weird existence because 
everyone was like, oh, my God, you're on fire. Like, I remember, like, that year, like, I was in the Out 100. I had photo shoots and all that stuff. Everyone was like, this year is incredible for you. And I was like, I haven't been able to work in a year. <laughs> no one will hire me. Again, it's something that people just don't talk about. And so that was a very, very difficult year, but it really clued me into the business and how things work. And the reality is that there's ebbs and flows and that because I'm a TV writer, the only thing that's guaranteed is long stretches of unemployment. And it is your job as the writer to kind of write yourself out of that and just constantly be generating like work and material. It's a stressful existence. You never feel like, oh, I can rest easy now. I've made it. Like there's not any of that. So um, after that, I wrote for a TV show uh, called Daytime Divas on VH1. And there I met John Canale and Tracy Pouse, who worked on Will and & Grace. And when we were in the room, that was when the Vote Honey um, video came out. And then Will and & Grace was coming back. And Tracy and John were like, oh, my God, do you have to go in for this job? Like, you'd be so good for it. And I was like, yeah, right. Like, literally. And, like, by the way, before that, there were things that I did that I thought for sure I was going to get. Like when Speechless came out on ABC, I thought, I'm getting that job. I'm a disabled comedy writer about a show with a, I'm like, I'm a unicorn. Like, like, hello, what? And I didn't get the job. And that was soul crushing. That was really bad because you know, I had feelings about that show. I didn't like that the guy with the disability was literally speechless. But that was based on the creator, Scott Silveri's brother, and his brother couldn't speak. So I understood that. You want to keep it real to life. But there is sort of a specific kind of pain when your stories are being told, but not by the people that it actually happened to. It's like people that it happened by proxy. I'm not saying that those people don't have a right, but when there's no stories like that being told, you kind of want the first story to be told by someone who's experienced it firsthand. I thought for sure I would have gotten that job, and I was so excited about it, and I didn't get it, and that was really crushing, but I was like, okay, then I just kind of like reframed it in my mind. I was like, okay, well, that's because you're meant to do your own show about disability and not work for someone else's and all that stuff. So I've just wrapped Will and & Grace, and I'm not going back next season because I'm doing special, so it's scary. Everything is TBD. Everything is sort of, I don't, I'm like a jaded bitch now. I don't trust anything until it actually happens. You know, I'm always just assuming that it's not going to happen. And if it does, it's a miracle. Well, then Grace, what was that experience like? It was so surreal. It was crazy because I obviously grew up worshiping it as a closeted gay teenager. So to be a part of it and seeing these brilliant comedians just act out these jokes that I had written or or whatever like was just so like mind-boggling to me it's such an institution it's such a it's such a thing and um it was overwhelming for me it was like very intense it took a while for me to feel comfortable there I just felt like oh my god I'm involved with this iconic thing that I loved but it was amazing I think I learned so much and Working with Max Muchnick, who's the co-creator with David Cohan, he has a snap, crackle, pop brain where, like, everything he says is just so funny and smart. And you kind of hope that just, like, by osmosis, like, some of it will rub off on you. Being able to go into their office and write a scene with them was sort of just, like, such a gift to be given that insight. So I loved it. I really did. It was a really special thing to be a part of. I am driven by a need for representation because I feel such pain for my younger self and I feel like if I had grown up with any kind of gay guy that looked remotely like me or was just imperfect, I think that would have saved me a lot of heartache and I feel terrible about that. I, I'm, I'm angry about it. You know, I am, I'm frustrated and I just want to hopefully just write that wrong and I want to make it easier for anyone coming up who's disabled or just doesn't feel like enough which is spoiler all gay men I want them to feel seen and I want them to feel heard and I want them to feel valued and I think that really drives me I think that really really drives me this is Steve Pride bringing you Pride Out Loud including my two-part conversation with TV writer Ryan O'Connell about his book I'm Special and Other Lies We Tell Ourselves until next time, thanks for listening. So, you know.
know what I thought was really interesting about this story is that he is indeed a unicorn. He's a disabled gay man mm-hmm. in this insane artificial industry. But at the same time, a lot of the stuff he's talking about is so archetypal Hollywood behind-the-scenes oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were – is this – we were listening to this. You were talking about, oh, yeah, that's, you know, what happens. Oh, yeah. So I just – I find that kind of dichotomy just fascinating. And I actually really am looking forward to reading that book. I know. He's very fun. And I I, I do hope he does a project one day called Jaded, Jaded Bitch TBD. Oh, yeah, I love it's it. It's a title waiting for something to be attached to it. Or the name of my band. <laughs> and now, Vosh Bodhi takes an LGBTQ retreat in Northern California. Where they TTV talk to Vosh. This is Vosh Bodhi, on the road again for another installment of TTV Talk to Vosh. I am walking on a trail by a creek on Groundswell, the property Kyle DeVries hopes is already a sanctuary for all of us. Hi, I'm Kyle DeVries. I'm the executive director of Groundswell Institute, the nonprofit retreat center, and I'm one of the founders of Groundswell Community. Where are we? We are right now in the living room off the dining hall of Groundswell's Retreat Center facilities. <laughs> what did you say? I was like, edit that out. It was actually quite cute. Where are we? We are on a sofa. <laughs> Tell me, where are we? Yeah, so we're in the Anderson Valley of Mendocino County, Northern California. What is Groundswell? Groundswell is a project in two parts. We are both a residential eco-village of queer people. So we live here, we commune with the land, we have working sustainable farm projects, and we also have a nonprofit retreat center, the Groundswell Institute, that runs programs year-round dedicated to helping LGBTQI people lead healthier, more fulfilled lives, and also give them the tools to create change in their own communities. How did you get the idea for Groundswell? There was a part of me that was always searching for this. I moved out to California about seven years ago, and I had already had experience with intentional community, but it was never queer intentional community. So I was looking for something that would have those elements of shared life and shared community, but with a little bit more emphasis on queer spirit and culture and got some experience with the Radical Fairy communities and their sanctuaries. Decided that wasn't my thing, per se, and then met up with some other people who were interested in forming, again, something that was a little bit more intentional in terms of how we actually shared life together. It was always a passion of mine that we do kind of educational programs and community-based programs that would help people dive into that experience even just for a weekend. I want to make sure that people understand what intentional communities are. The easiest way to describe intentional community is your idea of family being expanded way beyond just your biological family. I mean, I think it's something that we as LGBTQI people often have experience of. We don't have a strong connection to our biological family, so we form strong connections to others, and we're not unique in that, and there's a huge strength in that in terms of sharing resources, but also sharing support in terms of sharing wisdom. So we're really trying to seek here to create experiences where people are coming together and growing in a positive way from their experiences with each other. What kind of experience are you hoping people have here? Certainly one thing is we're wanting people to experience connection to nature. And I think that is something that really draws people out of their frenetic day-to-day energy. It allows them to ground more with themselves, but then ground with each other. And, you know, it's about enabling people to have experiences that are beyond what do you do for work kind of thing. It's like, who are you? How do we get to know each other and how do we learn each other's passions, learn each other's fears, and have it be in a supportive environment that we're then enabling each other's passions and helping each other overcome our fears. How did you come up with the name Groundswell? It was a group effort. We had a couple of different ideas over time. One of them was PRISM, the Pansy Research Institute for Social Metamorphosis, which would have been really cute, I think. But in the end, Groundswell, we decided, was a really great 
name to encapsulate both what we were hoping would happen in terms of a groundswell of support and love both within and without for LGBTQI individuals, as well as just uh, the physical location of the land, which has a lot of water, which is, of course, important to life. So again, that groundswell, it's both physical and metaphysical here. I like it when things are like onomatopoeia, like they are what they say and sound like. This is Vosh Bodhi with Groundswell's executive director, Kyle DeVries. Who have you had here in terms of groups at Groundswell? A lot. Most of the programs we have, we organize ourselves. And uh, that's something that makes us a little bit unique compared to other retreat centers is that we actually do our own programming. So we have like a queer creatives retreat, queer leadership retreat. We just got done with Chrysalis, uh, queer people of color retreat. All of those are organized by our nonprofit itself. But we also have groups that are interested in different forms of sexuality, Burning Man groups and coming here for the kind of their retreats, some BDSM groups, children's groups, queer leadership groups. So it, it kind of runs the whole gamut. So what would be your like fantasy groundswell group? So there's the retreat center and there's the community side. And on the retreat center side, we're open to all sorts of different segments of the queer communities coming here and being like, this is what we're going to build together. And then hopefully that will make more people feel welcome and like this space is their own, is one of their homes. It'd be lovely if we could actually get to a point with the LGBTQIAA community that we would be able to come together at different events and really feel at home with each other and not feel as much distinction because frankly we have a lot of work to do together and that's something that we try not to shy away from in our programs. We're trying to also build up our community for the hard work that we have to do, facing down not just this administration, but the many, many obstacles we have to true liberation and true freedom from hatred and oppression. In terms of the uh, eco-village side of things, we eventually want to grow to being a really functional, sustainable farm. Right now we have a lot of animals going. We have sheep, pigs, goats, chickens, geese, rabbits, alpacas, llamas, and we're just starting to get the gardens up and going. And so we're really hoping in the long run uh, to transform that land into a truly sustainable agricultural project that will be able to provide for everybody who's living here. And again, we hope that to be you know 20 to 30 people all with their various skill sets and all wanting to really have a life that is land-based and community-based, that is about sharing with each other. What are some of your favorite memories of getting Groundswell to this point? Early on, I was the only resident here. I was actually the first person to move out to the land. And so taking care of all these animals by myself, I get a call and the alpacas were out on the highway. And, <laughs> you know, dealing with those kinds of situations that I just frankly never thought I would be dealing with in my life was a lot of fun. And then on the converse side is those moments where you have your pure bliss, everything is running smoothly. I don't have to actually worry about it. I can actually just relax into the event itself. I love to people watch, and so just to like look around and see everybody's different expressions of joy and bliss and taking in the moment in the same way that I am. When you guys came out to see the land, what did it look like? It was actually right at the end of one of our big droughts in California, and the water was still flowing in the creek. You know, Even though the facilities were a little run down and everything, it was just seeing this space that had the capacity to host our community and do these kinds of programs and that still had water flowing in a beautiful way. It was like, okay, this is the right space. And within two hours of the Bay Area, it was exactly what we were looking for. And it was sooner than we expected. I was acting as scout and going and visiting properties. This is the first property I visited. A month and a half later, we put in our bid and like four months later, we own the property, this old kids' camp, which has its own spirit of youth and vitality. You know, it's fun. We got to be like this big old queer adults' kid camp. Well, the energy you speak of is so true. Just love everywhere. I feel so comfortable. I really don't want to leave. What's one of your favorite spots 
on the land. Grandfather Cedar is absolutely one of my favorite spots. It's this tree that you go on a trail up past the pond. Basically, it's this huge old cedar tree. By our estimates, at least 500, 600 years old. And you have two-thirds of the view of the valley above all the rest of the land. It's really quite stunning. What are you most proud of? I'm really proud of our community that lives here year-round and how we have faced the challenges of both living together and working together in a healthy and proactive way and really put in the work to make sure our relationships get stronger, not weaker, through those challenges. Has anyone said anything to you about the space or the experience that just really resonates with you? I've had a number of people come up to me and just tell me that Groundswell has changed their lives, that it saved them in one way or another, and I can't think of anything (laughs) that could be more memorable or important than that. Who's welcome here at Groundswell? Everybody is welcome at Groundswell, and it's something that we really value here. We are calling in people to share our life together to help build this land together in a long-term vision. We don't want that to be for any one set of people. We want it to be for all queer people. How would people get in touch with you? You can find us on our website at www.groundswell.institute. Or if you just Google Groundswell Institute or even Groundswell, we're right there. Fantastic. I want to thank you for talking to me. I think I've got what I need to make something really beautiful. It's been a pleasure being here. I can't wait to come back. Well, thank you, Vosh. This has been Vosh Bodie speaking with Groundswell's Executive Director, Kyle DeVries, in the mountains of the Anderson Valley. Remember, wherever you are, if you have a story to tell, PTV, talk to Vosh. So much wanting to talk to Vosh as much as wanting to follow him around. I know. This story was so fascinating that I thought, well, and because we suspected there might be naked people involved, we spent we went most online. of Yeah, we, we spent most of the story on the website and it looks great. Forestry There's, camp. I know. That actually sounds legitimately fun. Fun. Next month, forestry and, camp. Yeah, and there are work camps, there are New Year's Eve Samhain, things, there's Beltane. Beltane, all of those it's things. It's like the radical feminist camps I used to go to in the 80s, only sounds way more fun. Yeah, yeah. It looks cleaner and less radical mm-hmm. and more green. Radical in all the right ways. Yeah, cool. Well, that is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer and tonight's director, Steve Pride, board op Ricky Herrera, plus Rainbow Minute producers Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. Good Good night. night.